The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're looking at the field of sociolinguistics. What it is, why it's important, and what it can tell us about our culture and our society. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Sally Tagliamonte, a professor in the linguistics department at the University of Toronto and a member of the Royal Society of Canada. She's the author of six books, including Making Waves, Variationist Sociolinguistics, and Roots of English, among others. She has published on African-American varieties, British, Irish, Canadian, and Ontario dialects, teen language, and television. Sally, welcome to Science for the People. I'm very pleased to be here. So why study language? Well, studying language is like studying human beings. And if you're interested in human beings, you're interested in language because when people talk, it gives you all kinds of clues about who they are and where they come from, what the time and space is, you know, what what country are we in? Uh, how old is the person speaking? Uh, lots of things about people are reflected in the way we talk. What kinds of deeper insights do we get by sort of deep diving into how we communicate to each other? Well, as a linguist, of course, I'm a scientist of language. And so my, my goal is to study how language works and how it changes in particular. As a sociolinguist, I'm very interested in how people talk and how this reflects the societies that they're in. And so by studying language, you can do a lot of different things. You can be interested in the way social groups interact with each other. So, for example, if you've got a community and everybody sounds more or less the same, you can infer from that that there's not an intensely demarcated social structure in that community. But if you find a situation where you have very distinct social subgroups in a community, then that tells you something quite different. And so language gives us this opportunity to study what human beings are doing without them really telling us outright what it is they're doing. They're telling us that, well, not, you know, not telling, but because language reflects people, that gives us this incredible insight into what's going on in society and what's going on in nations, what's going on in neighborhoods. Uh, and depending on where you focus your attention in language, it's the proverbial elephant. If you focus on the trunk, you get long cylindrical object. And if you focus on the tail, you get a different type of thing. And language is like that too. You can look at it for its structure. You can look at it for what it does in terms of reflecting someone's identity. You can look at it in terms of how it reflects social groups or gender or biology. Those kinds of things are all there in language. So it just depends on what your interests are as a scientist of language. Your recent book is actually called Teen Talk, The Language of Adolescence. Uh, how teenagers talk, and in particular, how teen girls talk, often uh -huh. comes under pretty harsh criticism. It does. And one of the reasons why I wrote this book is because I was 
really exacerbated by people saying things like, oh, these young people today, they have the most terrible way of talking and the language is just deteriorating in a, in a massively horrible way. And as a scientist, you know, that's a really crazy idea because as language changes, of course, the grammar is shifting around and the value judgments people put on those changes are what cause, cause these very disparaging views on the way teenagers sound. In fact, teenagers are on the vanguard. They're on the leading edge of linguistic change. We may not like the way the language is evolving, but that's a, a kind of value judgment that people put on it. The system of language is just rolling down the, the, you know, the, the drift of time in its own way. And one way of expressing uh, an idea and language is not any better than another way. It's the difference between someone saying butter and butter. I mean, which one is the more beautiful? Well, as far as the language is concerned, there's no real beautiful difference between a t and a d. But of course, there's an incredible social distinction between whether you say butter or butter or even butta. And of course, the value judgment goes on to language from outside the system. It comes to the language from the society in which the language is used. I'm, I'm just going to assume that uh, our generation of teenagers, or even my generation of teenagers back when I was a teenager, aren't the first to have adults maybe criticize the way they're using language. I'm going to assume that this is a pattern that has happened yes. before. <laughs> yes, probably for as long as there has been language. So uh, what I'm really curious about is how language changes as we get older. I, I think about this sort of in my own experience. Um, and I try to think if I spoke differently as a teenager than I do now, or if I have sort of am part of a generation that has changed the language in ways. And as I get older, just my language becomes the norm. Uh, how does it change as we get older? Do we kind of obtain new grammars or kind of go into different types of speaking or, or communicating? Or do we kind of keep what we have? as teenagers, like you say, when we were on the sort of vanguard, the front lines of, of language change and kind of bring that up with us? Well, these are very interesting questions that you're raising. And to be honest, this is one of the, um, this is one of the frontiers of the study of language. Because of course, how could we possibly study how language evolves as someone gets older? Well, you'd have to follow that someone for a very long period of time and have ample amounts of their language to study. That kind of a project is pretty difficult to do because you have to have a very longitudinal approach. Now, let me step back from that and try to answer your question a different way. And that is, we know from sociolinguistic theory that one way of studying the way language changes is to look at people of different ages in the same community. We call this looking at language through the lens of apparent time, apparent because if you look at a cross-section of a population at one point in time, from nine-year-olds to 90-year-olds, you can get a, a kind of a proxy for how change has evolved over the time frame that those people were acquiring language. And given that type of material, people have hypothesized 
with quite a lot of empirical validation that we change our linguistic systems as we age, but only up to a certain point. By the time we hit early adulthood or late you know, late teens, our language is pretty much stable. And the hypothesis has been that we remain more or less stable in our linguistic system from then on. Okay, so let me just make sure that I understand. So it seems like we do change our sort of personal linguistic system as we age, but that that sort of stabilizes. And then presumably, as we get older, we're then bringing up whatever our normal is, and, and it sort of becomes the sort of normal language. That's correct. Now, of course, that's the model. And we have good evidence from many studies over the last 50 years that support that. Of course, there are other things going on in language as we age as well. And that is that we can change in terms of who we are and what type of work we do and what kinds of people we come in contact with. So, for example, someone who's 20 might very well be a student. But by the time they're 25, they're in law school. And by the time they're 50, they may have become a judge. How that person's language will change over the course of that kind of social mobility or professional mobility is really an unknown factor. We have certain evidence from current studies that as people age and as they move up the professional ladder, they do increase their use of standard formal variants that are current in the language of the time. So let me practicalize that by giving you an example. Suppose someone is a student and they might say things like, he's the guy that I love. But by the time they're in law school, maybe they've learned to be more supposedly precise with their language. And they might say, this woman, that is the man who she loves. And so the use of who for a human being in that construction is something that is a more formal variant. And so sometimes as people go into these more formal situations at a higher social level, they may very well use more standard variants. Of course, they're not going to be using the standard variants of Shakespearean English. They're going to be using the ones that are still current in contemporary language, but maybe not the more vernacular or informal ones they might have used as teenagers. Again, you are asking questions that are really on the front line of investigations that are currently in progress today. We've never followed someone from childhood into their 80s in our, in our field. Right now, I've been studying a single individual who was born in 1986, and we've been interviewing her every year subsequently, and she's currently, I think, 30. And so far, that original hypothesis that adults will have a stable grammatical system has pretty much been borne out. But it depends on the type of phenomena we're looking at. Sometimes features that are more embedded in the language, that are more, let's say, like we're not conscious of using, may not change. But if we're conscious of, uh, for example, you probably notice in your own experience that 
there are certain things that you can modify in your language. I know when I moved to England, well, the first thing I did was drop my Canadian A. Uh, I come from up north. I was born and raised in the north. And so one of the features in my dialect was to say A. But boy, when I went to England, I had to stop using that because it marked me as an outsider. And so I dropped it like a hot potato. But I certainly didn't drop a lot of the other things I do that, of course, I can't modify because that's just the way I learned to talk. So why does somewhere like the UK seem to have so many different accents and dialects, while somewhere like Canada seems to have comparably fewer, even though we're a much bigger country? Well, it all comes down to time depth and language contact and historical circumstance. So, for example, in the UK, you have a country that has been settled for a millennia or more. And so you can go back to eight or 900 AD and people were speaking English in Northumbria. And in that time frame, people were not, we didn't have global mobility. Little communities were built up on, you know, feudal models or castles or whatever. The geography is imprinted on the landscape of the UK even today. Whereas think of Canada. We're hardly 200 years old. We're not. We're having 150 years not too too long from now. And so, of course, we haven't developed uh, regional differentiation as, as significantly as the UK. And the other thing about the UK is it has had incredibly long periods of language contact, whether from Norse invaders or the Norman conquest or are so many things in the history of the UK that have led to dialect mixture and borrowing language contact effects so that's another thing the other, and the other thing is in the UK you've got quite a lot of uh, social stratification that is simply not what we have in Canada in fact on a recent trip to the UK I took a, a team of six of my students all born and raised in Toronto but of course different colors different backgrounds and it was virtually shocking to my UK colleagues to hear them speaking and not be able to tell any difference amongst them. They were all speaking Canadian English. So in a place like Canada, we have a really large country with uh, hypothetically a lot of regional isolation, except that in the modern world, there kind of is no regional isolation. We're able to move from place to place much more easily. We're able to communicate much more easily over the phone, uh, over the internet. I'm assuming that all sort of changes the way that regional language or dialects would evolve. Certainly, uh, my guess is that they would evolve slow, more slowly. Well, uh, you'd think that in uh, these days of social mobility and uh, regional mobility and geographic mobility that everybody would sound the same. But uh, in fact, that's not what happens. And even in the U.S. where you have uh, large urban centers, you have the big cities diverging from each other in massive ways. And this is, again, what's so fascinating about language it's not just the internal system that is in operation, because if that was the case, then all these standardized trends would be true. But the problem is language is used by people, and people want to sound like where they come from. And so we have these two opposing forces uh, in language all the time. 
And in Canada, it's true that in the major cities amongst middle class people, we all pretty much sound the same. But the minute you go out of the cities and into the regions, you know, widely dispersed within these very large provinces we have, you do find regional differentiation. So it depends. Um, I think there's there may be like these regularizing trends in certain sectors of the population, but you can't go too far out of Toronto before you find the, uh, sounds and, and ways of speaking that are quite different. Speaking of more rural dialects within Canada, your Ontario Dialects Project, can you tell us a little bit about that research and what prompted it? I am so passionate about my Ontario Dialects Project. It came about because I noticed that my research assistants in my lab in Toronto were having a lot of difficulty transcribing interviews that I did in Northern Ontario. And I thought, well, what's going on? Why can't they understand? And there were so many words and phrases. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to listen to these recordings myself. And I was very befuddled. Like, why can't they understand this? I could understand it all. And I kept filling in the incomprehensible sections. And of course, this is a common phenomenon. When you are the fish in the fishbowl, you don't notice that things are different. But the minute you get out of the fishbowl, as my research assistants were in this case, born and raised in Toronto, trying to transcribe materials that had come from, you know, 800 kilometers away, and they were struggling. It's not that they couldn't understand the language. It's that they were missing words, expressions, phrases, that kind of thing. And it suddenly struck me. Well, of course. Here I am. I'm, I'm doing research in a very remote area of northern Ontario, and I can understand it perfectly. But then I realized... I grew up in Northern Ontario. I know what these words mean. So then I started saying to my undergraduate students in Toronto, I'd talk to my large classes and I'd say, well, do you know what this word means? And they'd look at me blankly. And then I'd say, well, what about this word? And they wouldn't know that word either. And so then I started realizing, why? we think that Canadian English is all the same, but actually it's not. If you go out of the city and into the small towns and villages and mining towns and farming communities of Ontario, you find a very different way of speaking. I do want to talk as well about uh, the way we use language in different settings. We, You talked a little bit before about how we might pick up different ways of speaking because of our professions, because of, of where we end up moving or where we tend to go or who we are surrounded by. And I, I do yeah. want to talk about um, class and language specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had some fascinating conversations with UK friends about the class distinction in the UK and how these differences kind of leak into or are revealed by language. So can you talk a little bit about the UK, since that seems to be a really good example of how this is really overt or can be really overt? Well, you're getting into areas where people can get very irate about misperceptions and things like that. So let me just say that in the UK, there's this very strong ideology that working class people sound one way and middle class people sound another way, which is very hard to relate to the North American frame of mind. 
the way North Americans tend to interpret those kinds of differences really has more to do with education. So if you hear someone use a non-standard feature, you're going to say, oh, they're not educated. You're not going to say, oh, they're working class, for example. But in the UK, it's very strongly delineated where if, if you hear someone use a very um, non-standard feature, they're, they're going to be labeled working class. So any of the non-standard features that we know and love, like ain't or uh, putting extraneous S's on things like I says, um, double negation, ain't nobody got nothing, that kind of thing. Whereas in Canada, if we were to hear someone use those forms, we'd probably just say, oh, they're not educated rather than they're, they're working class. There are lots of different dialects in the UK, and, and, and certain forms are associated with regional dialects as well. And also, the minute we start talking about dialects, then we, we have another layer in there, that is age. So older people in rural areas tend to use more conservative features, I would say. By conservative, I mean they're older features of the language that are retained in often rural places that are off the beaten track. And those features uh, also tend to become identified as being part of that place. So there are different layers in interpreting language behaviors that are not part of the standard. In the UK, it's so incredibly imbued with, with class. Whereas in, in Canada or the United States, we, it would be more interpreted as, oh, that person comes from a particular region and they probably haven't got as much education as other people. I think as well in North America, it seems like our, there's some, there's definitely some strong lines between the way some racial groups use language or some dialects that have come up around racial groups. I'm thinking of sort of black English vernacular. Exactly. Yes. Uh, and that to me seems like it, it, you were talking about things like double negatives. I think in North America, that's something that most people would strongly associate with the way black people in North America talk often. Yes. And the, uh, the issue of uh, African-American vernacular English is certainly a vexed uh, topic. And again, I would, I would caution people in making judgments about social groups or ethnic groups based on the way they talk because, of course, you have to look at the history and the culture of those groups to really understand why they might be using a construction like double negation or ain't or any of these s's i've been talking about like he, i says or he say and a lot of times it the way a particular group uses language has a lot more to do with the history and culture of that group than with their education or their uh, or anything else to do with them. But of course, people are making social judgments about groups all the time. The last thing I wanted to talk about is uh, in, in Teen Talk and in a recent interview you gave on the Lexicon Valley podcast, you talked about how women tend to be on the forefront of linguistic change. And I was hoping you could unpack that a little bit because I had never heard this before. Okay, well, that is one of those things that we have really found consistently throughout many, many studies in sociolinguistics is that women tend to lead linguistic change. So, of course, the big question is why do women and men behave so differently when it comes to linguistic change? And there are many theories about this. You know, one theory is, well, it's just biology. Women are you know, linguistically superior to men. 
that's not a very popular one. Another idea is that, well, you know, we have to look at the culture in, that human beings are are part of. And many people have suggested that it's the role of women in society that leads to their uh, adoption of new changes more quickly than men. Men tend to be about a generation behind. So women tend to pick up linguistic changes and push them forward before men do. Well, then there's another idea. It's not really that women are, are picking up linguistic change and pushing it forward. It's that men don't like change, and so they resist it. And so whenever women are picking up on some new form, women, you know, they don't want to sound like women, so they resist that change. So this is the idea that there's covert prestige in language women tend to gravitate towards the forms and uses that are socially sanctioned, whereas men don't want to sound like that because that will make them sound too, you know, formal or, or something like that. And so they, they use the, the less standard forms. So uh, when you mentioned that we have uh, evidence supporting this idea, can you tell us what type of evidence we've, we've looked at or that we have to show that women tend to lead linguistic change? Well, the, the biggest evidence comes from uh, large-scale uh, community-based studies that were done in the United States, the UK, uh, in the 60s and 70s. These are like studies of New York and Boston and Philadelphia and Detroit, Montreal, London. And in all these places where people have done these large-scale studies, looking at change in progress across the 20th century, women have been in the lead. This is the same as my big Toronto English project where I've looked at, I don't know, dozens of different changes and in most most of the time it's women that are leading these changes now interestingly people could say oh yeah it's just 20th century western culture well no no it's not just 20th century western culture because people have looked at uh, language change in other countries in the 20th century but the, the coolest evidence is that when you look at historical corpora for example uh Stuart England, there have been big studies of uh, historical corporate British English, and even one of my uh, PhD students has been looking at Old Babylonia, and we don't have very many women from these earlier time frames, but where we do have women, if there's a change in progress, women seem to lead in the use of these new variants over time. So it's something that transcends Western culture, it's something that transcends the 20th first century, it seems to be a prevailing thing. You mentioned a couple of theories about why women seem to be at the front of this and why men tend to stay back and uh, resist change or maybe not um, jump on the change bandwagon as quickly. Is there a, a leading one of these theories or one or maybe there's a couple that might intersect? Well, I think it's more, I mean, what would be the leading? Uh, you know, I, I think it's this dialectic, this, you know, this, this tension between women wanting to uh, have the, the formal variants and men trying to resist it. So people have talked about women leading, but it could very well be it's this dialectic between men and women across the lifespan. Uh, and this idea of prestige and covert prestige, I think, is extremely important as well, because inevitably in any of the studies that I've done, it'll be men that use more of the non-standard variants and women are using more of the standard variants. 
If we look at more modern cases of this, are we finding that women are maybe leading change less or less out in front, given that gender equality is starting to become uh, more Uh, sort of conscious in our culture? You would think so. But so far, I... um and I think in my in my new book, Teen Talk, I think I've documented one of the only very or one of the very few changes that are clearly being led by men, and that's the use of stuff. So all the other ones that you found and documented in Teen Talk were being led by teen girls, uh, by young women, yep. So with the stuff, what about the use of stuff kind of lends itself to young men, I guess, is my question. And it's kind of one of these, uh, it's a curious thing. Uh, You know, stuff is a a perfectly acceptable English word. It it has long, deep roots in the English language. You can have, uh, here's my stuff, and everybody knows what you're talking about. But young people today are using stuff in other ways. So you can think, get things like rock stones and stuff. Hmm. Or uh, uh, here's my, you know, my, my dress, my purse, and all the rest of that stuff. And you can say, we do stuff. We do lots of stuff. And if I ask my son, what did you do at school today? He says, stuff. <laughs> so even my husband the other day said, I'm going to Home Depot to get a couple of stuff. And I said, <laughs> you're going to do what? So stuff seems to be taking over as this kind of generic word for just about anything. Sally, this has been really fascinating. And thank you so much for joining me today. Really interesting topic. And it's going to make me very self-aware of how I speak for at least the next week. I know. That's what happens when you study language. You become very self-conscious. And you also spend a lot of time listening to how people talk uh, as opposed to what they're saying. Do you find that you are also more interested in sort of trying out different types of language, depending on what setting you're in? Or are you mostly trying to sort of sit back and, and see how one group's language differs from some of your some of the other group's languages? Well, I'm always observing language. It's, uh, it's one of the great benefits of my job is that my, my work is all around me wherever I go. But of course, uh, I also know that I, I can't really change uh, the way I talk very much. And so... I I usually just sound like who I am. Sally, thanks again for joining us. And if you want to learn more about Sally Tagliamonte, her work or her books, we have links to get you started on our website, which is scienceforthepeople.ca. Next up, we'll be talking with sociolinguist Leanne Brown about her research into how linguistic cues might or might not reveal our gender and sexual preferences. Stay tuned. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. With me is Dr. Leanne Brown. She has a PhD in linguistics from the University of Toronto and is an emerging scholar in the field of sociophonetics, specializing in linguistic variation associated with gender and sexual orientation. 
She currently teaches courses on language, power, and sociolinguistics at the University of Calgary, and is working on a book project based on her thesis, Phonetic Cues and the Perception of Gender and Sexual Orientation, while exploring real-world applications for her research. Leanne, welcome to Science for the People. Well, thank you for asking me. It's a pleasure. So I was reading a little bit about uh, gender licks and the idea that men and women speak differently. So can can you talk a little bit about how men and women speak differently? Well, <laughs> it's uh, it's an interesting subject. It assumes that we do. So we need to back up a little bit and understand what we mean when we're talking about men and women and, and gender. Um when we're talking about this, we're really talking about something at a macro level, this concept that society has or, or uh, shares in terms of what gender roles are and how we fill those gender roles. So we're not talking about gender identity on a personal level. Um, the research that looks at gender lex suggests that, yeah, there is a difference. And most of the research that I've found that finds differences usually finds them on a, sort of a discourse analysis level. So how we have conversations conversations, um, how we frame things in conversations versus actually looking at the nitty gritty of the linguistics. Uh, it's a little problematic when we do that. Again, a lot of the research on gender lex is quite old and a lot of it's based on academics. So they go into a university and see what white middle class, uh, well-educated people talk about when they talk in dyads, for example. And that's not really representative of women as a whole or men as a whole. So it's a bit tricky when we're talking about that. It's interesting. Uh, this goes back to a period, like you said, where a lot of research was just done on a very certain, on a certain class, a certain race of people. And so m my assumption is that uh, there were some differences found in the way men and women speak when we're talking about uh, middle to upper class white men and women in that era. But there's also, I would suspect, some differences across the board in different cultures with how different uh, sort of men and women talk. Yeah, I think what we're finding as we do more and more research is there's so much in terms of intersectionality that we have to think about. So rather than just look at gender, you need to look at gender and age or gender and race and age or gender and class and race and age. And the more specific you get in terms of these intersections, the more differences you may or may not come across. The thing to remember with gender is, you know, it's not a biological, it's not a biological thing. It's a social construct. And when you're looking at, do you choose the word uh, so, or do you choose the word really, it's not biologically driven, it's socially driven whether you choose those things. So we have to keep in mind that, you know, the more social forces that we look at, the more uh, gender may or may not be the issue. It may be a, a social class issue. It may be an ethnicity and social class issue. Once, so it's it's the intersectionality of this that makes it really tricky to try and figure out whether this is a, a gender difference potentially, or maybe it's a, a class based difference. Right, right. Ah, interesting. So why is it important to think about how gender differences are revealed in language? Right. So there's two different things that we want to talk about when we talk about gender differences in terms of language. And we want to know about variation just for the terms of variation. We want to know what people do. And gender is just uh, an interesting social class. But the thing about gender is that it really has a lot of back to it. So there's a lot of things that are going on behind the scenes. And 
what's happening linguistically is sort of a symptom of that. So when we think about things like uptalk or vocal fry, hedging, those kinds of things, we're talking about um, how they're perceived. So in terms of production, people talk about, well, young women do this. But when we actually look at research, for example, in Canada, there's been some research, and we find that women uptalk more than men do in terms of frequency. So men uptalk, women uptalk, but women do it a little bit more. The most interesting part of that is that in terms of perception, women don't perceive uptalk as as, as indicating that they're unsure or not confident, but men do perceive uptalk that way. So women have a positive feeling about uptalk, this idea that it's very communal, it builds rapport, it's conversational lubricant sort of thing, whereas for men, it's it's seen as a very negative thing. So what's interesting is that, you know, the common perception of uptalk is that it's a bad thing, that it does denote someone who's unsure or not confident. So linguistic variation shows us what's happening in terms of production, but more importantly, it shows us what's happening in terms of perception, which indicates where the power base is. So the idea that if one group gets to say this is a bad thing versus this is a good thing, then they have more power uh, in terms of they get to define what's good speech. And language is an area where people still are feeling free to um, belittle and demean other people. So it's, you, you know, you don't talk about someone's race, you talk about their language. You don't talk about someone's gender, you attack their language use. So it's a kind of circumventing of, of being directly um, opposed to a group because you can actually just talk about their language. And that seems to be a natural and okay kind of thing to do. Whereas, um, you know, attacking someone in terms of gender would not be an okay, socially sanctioned kind of thing to do. Vocal fry is one that I I hear a lot about because I'm in the podcasting sphere, and yeah. it's definitely something that's uh, come up over and over again in in the world of podcasting, especially if you follow women podcasters. Um, and so, for anybody that doesn't know, could you maybe describe what vocal fry is? Well, it's it's you're increasing the tension in your vocal cords, so you're you're sounding a little bit like this. And I found in my research, when I tried to do my research in Toronto, at the University of Toronto, uh, there was vocal fry happening a lot within uh, students. So trying to actually get vowels from students was problematic because they use a lot of vocal fry. And it seems to index sort of uh, intellect and academic prowess in certain situations. Uh, I ended up doing my research here at University of Calgary, and there's a lot less happening in terms of vocal fry at the university level. Interesting. So vocal fry is something that we can pick up in certain contexts or in certain s cultures that we find ourselves in. And so it, there does seem to be a correlation um, with who is tending to use vocal fry more often. Yeah, and, and why they're using it. I mean, so if you think about here you are in a podcast situation, you don't have a lot of means at your disposal to uh, show your identity, right? You're just, it's just a voice. It's this disembodied voice. So using vocal fry is one sort of special effect that you can do. And if this, this idea that it on a larger macro level scale, it's indexed with something intellectual, then you sound very intellectual. And if you're told not to do up talk and many other things, then this would be a perfect antidote for that, right? So I, I don't want to sound unsure. I want to sound academic. I'm, so I'm going to, I'm going to fry my voice, right? Um, and 
And so that's possible. But again, there's a backlash to it. There's definitely been a backlash to it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I was reading an interview you gave to Canadian Language Museum, and you spoke a little bit about Robin Lakoff's work in the 70s on gender dialects. Can you talk a little bit about her work and what she found? Well, she started off with an article. So this is 1970s. Um, you have to think about this in terms of the second wave feminism. And she she started off with this article, and it ended up being a book. And she talks about, uh, and it's called women's language, so, and this concept of, of how women use language. And it's not based on any kind of surveys or experiments. It's based on her experience as uh, a white, heterosexual, um, middle class, upper middle class, well-educated academic. And so she has a very specific um, way of, of, of looking at women's language and talking about it. So that's one of the sort of first stepping stones that we get in terms of really looking at the role of women and, and language variation. And so that's an important step. Uh, the limitation is, though, it's, you know, based on her one person's sense of what it's like. And that's always problematic, her intuitions. And But she acknowledges that, right? She says, well, this is based on what I've experienced. Um, so that was, you know, it's a huge oh, a door opening up for, for people looking at language. And this idea that she really, for the first time, questions um, not just so, – so some people have framed her work as saying, well, she's saying that, you know, women's language is, is full of deficits. It's just not very good. It's full of these hedges and these, these you know, very vacuous words like intensifiers of, of really wonderful. You shouldn't do that. That's very bad English using very wonderful – you should just say wonderful. Um, so this idea that women are somehow deficit, but but she does make very clear in her work that she's talking about power. She's talking about dominance and power, and uh, you know women having less power than men in terms of you know, social opportunities and access to social opportunities. So that's a really important thing. How much of the differences in language use is that we have in sort of these subgroups are really come down to power dynamics? Well, it sort of depends on the frame, right? So there's these three frames that people talk about when they talk about gender specifically. So this idea of a deficit, an idea of a dominance, and then an idea of a difference. So this idea um, is just women do things differently than men, and men do things differently than women, and that's okay, is sort of the latest flavor of the week. But when you get into more postmodernist stuff, then it becomes more problematic. And it's this idea of when you're looking at production by a group, you have to actually actually have group. <laughs> you have to have a group that has what we call shared linguistic norms. They have to be part of a speech community. And just being a woman doesn't mean that you're part of a shared speech community. Um, as I'm saying before, it's not a biological imperative. Just because you have an XX versus an XY chromosome set, that doesn't mean you're going to produce language in a specific type of way. So we have to be really careful when we talk about these large groups in terms of production. So it's like when you talk about, well, what's an athlete? Okay, well, we have the Olympics going on. So throw a stone, hit an athlete, and you've hit, you know, a, a shot putter. Are they going to be the same uh, and speak the same as another type of athlete who's a gymnast or a runner? No, they're going to be very different. And even though we say there's this category of athlete, that doesn't necessarily mean they, they share a lot of things. It's an imagined community. It's not actually people interacting as athletes. But they're in the Olympic Village. Maybe they are interacting. Maybe they are developing uh, different ways of talking or code words for things. And then that would be shared linguistic norms. So you need to be able to say, 
say that you definitely have some kind of community in terms of production. So this is the other issue when you look at something like sexual orientation. So suddenly all gay men are supposed to sound alike. That doesn't make sense. It's just, it's not a shared community. They don't all hang around with each other. Um, so in terms of perception, you can say that. We do have these large ideals or ideas or concepts of what women do, what gay men do. And language can be part of that. And you can take a look at that and you can look at how people um, produce things in contrast to that or how they do use those macro things for certain types of performances. So what I mean by that is when you think about a stand-up comedian, they have limited resources when they're doing their routine. And if they're a male and they want to... Um, you know, s sort of do something and pretend that they are a woman, they have limited resources. So usually what they're going to do is they're going to alter their voice in a certain way. Same thing if they want to, uh, you know, project that they're being a gay man or a straight man, for example. So there's certain things that they can do and that taps into this larger macro level societal ideal. Um, and that's for, for a very special effect. So that doesn't mean they're doing it all the time, but they can use it for special effect. And this indicates that we have these shared norms. We all know what they're doing when they when they speak like this. We go, oh, he's being a woman now. Uh, now he's pretending he's a gay guy. Oh, now he's pretending he's a straight guy. So those kinds of things are are what we have to think about when we talk about you know gender and these these smaller groups that we want to look at variation in, in terms of. This leads me right into the next thing I want to talk about, which is how we perceive gender or sexual orientation language cues and how we use language to help detect people's gender or sexual orientation. Because uh, like you say, we do use auto audible cues from how a person speaks to kind of slot people into these types of categories. Right. So, um, well, in terms of gender, I mean, think about it. You answer the phone, it's somebody you don't know, and you're probably pretty good at assessing their age, perhaps, their gender, perhaps. Uh, beyond that, I mean, if I asked you to assess people's height, might not do so well. Um, hair color, not so well. So there's certain things that we um, can sort of figure out fairly well. So in terms of uh, sexual orientation, you know, a lot of people think that they're really good at it. People talk about gaydar. You know, I... I've heard so many people talk about it. I have a friend whose um, first language is Persian, and she said that she has amazing gaydar in Persian, but in English she doesn't, uh, which I think is very interesting. What the research tells us, though, is that gaydar doesn't work. People are not very good at assessing people's sexual orientation based on their linguistic output. Uh, people are very confident that they are very good, but they're not. So <laughs> <laughs> that's a big difference. I'm wondering if this idea that we we have that people are sort of looking for those language cues to slot someone in a particular sexual orientation or another might potentially feed back in itself too in, in situations where you want to be identified of a particular sexual orientation. It, has there been any thought about whether or not this sort of feedback loop exists as in like the media presents us a stereotype and we sort of replicate it in order to be recognized as that thing we want to be recognized as? Uh um, ah, that, that I'm not so sure about. Um, I would say, again, it's like, 
you know, who are you looking at? So if you say, I'm going to, I'm going to study the production of gay men. Okay. Well, how do you know that they're a representative sample mm. of gay men? And, and so gay men in Toronto may be very different than gay men in Vancouver, which may be very different in a rural population, which may be very different when you take in terms of class and ethnicity and things like that. So this idea that, um, people might see something in the media and pick up on it and say, yeah, I want to do that. It's possible. Um, so for example, I had one participant, um, when I was doing some work, was a trans man, so biologically female, transition and living as a male. And he identified as a gay male, and he was doing specific linguistic things to um, present as a gay male. And he he got a lot of feedback from the trans community that he shouldn't do that, that he would probably... Um, probably be beaten up basically like he's gonna he's gonna expose himself to violence by doing these things and so there's a, a lot of of social stuff that that people are trying to do whether it's going to be picked up in the way you mean it or not right so this idea that this trans man may be interpreted as a trans man and that puts him in a certain um danger for violence by people who don't uh, approve of or appreciate trans men? Or is he going to be beat up because they think he's a gay man? A rock in a hard place. That's what that yeah, sounds like. Yeah. And yet that's that's um, a very clear situation where he has chosen to do something linguistic that he thinks is associated with gay men. So uh, how easy or difficult is it for people to pick up or learn a different uh, sort of gender dialect, uh, if we think of it sort of more broadly, assuming that they would want to, like in the instance of a trans man or a trans woman who's actively trying to pass as a gender different from that they were born with? I think that the major difference is really phonetic. It's it's not about the, the words you choose or how you put the sentence together or any of those bigger things where we actually find gender differences. A lot of it has to do with picking up the phone and saying hello and being addressed as sir or madam. So really, a lot of the work that uh, people do is, is, is based on the phonetics, the sound of their voice. So for trans men, that's an interesting thing because if they choose to take testosterone, they will uh, undergo sort of a, pu a puberty, a male puberty, and their vocal cords will thicken and uh, lengthen and their voices usually drop. So often they have an easier time on the phone being recognized as a man or in a store when they say hello. Uh, sometimes people talk about their voices ripening, that kind of thing, and not all trans men choose to take testosterone. So there's issues there. For trans women, so biologically male, living and presenting as women, it becomes a little bit trickier and much more difficult because they've most, well, most adult people who've transitioned have already gone, undergone uh, a male puberty. And so their vocal cords have already lengthened and thickened. And that's not reversible with estrogen or anything else. So you've got this male Adam's apple with these vocal cords that produce lower sounds. And those are indexed with masculinity and being male. So how do you change that? Uh, some people do go for surgery. It's a tricky thing and it's a very delicate kind of operation and I'm, I'm, pr I'm pretty sure it's expensive. Um, and not many people are going to do that um, where you would actually shave your vocal cords and, uh, or, or somehow reduce their thickness and their length. Uh, the other thing is that some people go to speech language therapists and and develop a, a female quote unquote female uh, voice. 
So that's an option, but it's usually one of the last things that people have the resources to take a look at and change. So, sorry. No, I was just going to say it. So it sounds like there is, depending on which gender you're transitioning to, there is, um, for, for transgendered men, there is an option to, or the ability to kind of change, uh, the physiology behind your yeah. vocal cords so that you produce that kind of deeper tone more naturally. Whereas right. for, for trans women, it becomes more of like a practice until it maybe becomes like a habit to speak in a different tone or register, I guess. Yeah, that's, that's about it. But the other problem with all that is that you probably, uh, will want to work with somebody who's a professional, like a speech language pathologist, and they really don't have a lot of training in what to do. So back in the day, I was talking to a speech language pathologist in Toronto who is working with trans women. And, um, you know, the resources available for this speech language therapist were, were you know, gender lex stuff. And I, I found that really frightening that, that this idea of teaching trans women to use um, sort of submissive language is, is quite a frightening thing. Uh, I think no, nobody needs to be sounding powerless in, in, to, in order to fulfill a gender role. I, I don't really agree with that. Um, um, but actually changing the tone of your voice or the pitch of your voice. Uh, some people work on fundamental frequencies. So this idea of, of um, somehow changing the configuration of your vocal tract in order to change your output that makes it more likely to be indexed with a woman uh, is the better way to go. It does seem uh, a tricky thing to navigate when you're talking about um, uh, a trans woman trying to pass or fit in, but then also, like you say, having to use potentially or, or thinking about using actively phrases that can be potentially disempowering. That's, that is a tricky space to navigate. Yeah, and but I think that that it's a misunderstanding. It's based on a misunderstanding of gender difference and really... This idea of the gender, like, I mean, this is what really sort of compelled me to get into social linguistics was this idea of, of people transitioning and having to switch from a, one gender like to the other. And the more research I did, the more I realized there really isn't anything that you can say is a gender like, in my opinion. I, I think that there is just different frequencies of different variables. And there are certain things that people do, but they change as generation goes, right? So this idea that, um, in the 1980s, young women use the intensifier so, young men use the intensifier pretty. That was a gender difference Sally Tagliamonte found in, in Toronto. But, you know, when you look at stuff now, uh, there doesn't seem to be so much of a gender difference. People are using a lot of really. <laughs> and so it seems like an age difference. I use very. I'm a, an old school girl. So there's a difference in terms of age. But, you know, so, you know, at what point does so become not gendered? And then should we be, you know, saying that, oh, if you're transitioning and you want to be perceived as a woman, then you need to use so. That could be old information. I, I think you should be authentically who you are. And, um, and, you know, this idea that there are gender lex, I, I find really, um, problematic in a, in, in a lot of ways that they're applied. I think that there are certain more large, like, discourse differences than, you know, and based on gender and socialization. But I think that's a little bit different than what most people transitioning are, are working towards. I'm interested. Or pointed towards. I'm interested in situations where, 
in general, both genders seem to use uh, a particular uh, word or particular phrase or, or there's a particular sort of thing that's sort of culturally, like you said, so or really or pretty. Um, if there's a difference in the way we perceive those from ten from male to female or even though that they sort of used equally in, in roughly, does that make sense? Does that question even make sense? Um, yeah, I'm just trying to think of something that fit that. <laughs> I think, you know, unless you actually do a survey, people can have lots of intuitions about language and people are very often really passionate about language and, and they feel like they know things. Like when you talk to people about, you know, um, gaydar, they really feel that they, they know that they're good at it. <laughs> and when we do the research, they don't. They, they just, you know, it's a crapshoot. It's worse than Vegas kind of thing. Um, so, so, you know, when you actually do research, it's really difficult to find things that are consistent across generations that are very gender specific. Um, and, and again, it's, it's not like we have a different dialect. It's not like men never use so and women never use pretty. Um, it's just a matter of frequency and, you know, that kind of thing. Now, when we have a, a shift, when things are changing, uh, we do see a difference in gender. So this idea that, um, you know, that women are language innovators seems to be pretty supported in a lot of ways. But again, it depends on the variable. In some situations, men are the innovators. So um, Sally and I did some work looking at the use of intensifiers in terms of how they're used in a narrative or a story versus in sort of regular chat. So looking at her data, we found that women were using the sort of new incoming intensifier really a lot more in um, in chat, especially younger women. So comparing older women and younger women, I think the older women were 40 plus. Um, we see a lot of young women using really in the narrative situation and then low levels of it being used by everybody in the sort of chat situation. So our interpretation was that that these young women are bringing in this new variable in a very specific context, which was the narrative context. And then it's going to disperse outside of the narrative into chat where it will be picked up by people. Fascinating. So in some cases, when we're talking about uh, the idea of women being innovators in language or even anybody being an innovator in language. Sometimes it's even kind of more specific than that. It's a certain context that a piece, a new piece of language is being introduced or used or kind of tested. Yeah, it has to start somewhere. So um, that kind of thing is interesting. The use of quotatives is interesting as well. This idea you want to introduce a quote and so back in the day, used to say, he said, these are lovely apples. Uh, now we have some more options. So he goes, like, those are lovely apples. Or he's like, those are lovely apples. Um, and so where did that start? Where where did people start using these quotatives? And we see that there's a gender shift, not a gender shift, sorry, a generational shift. Um, younger people use a lot more quotatives than older people when they're telling stories or when they're having conversations. Leanne, thank you so much. It's really fascinating research. And now I'm just going to be paying way more attention to the language I use and to the language that the people I'm talking to are using. It's it's just one of those things that I've been reading about that uh, I'm finding a fascinating new way of thinking about something I use every day. Well, I hope you feel free to use your vocal fry as much as possible. (laughs) I shall try. I I don't know. I'm not sure I'm very good at vocal fry. (laughs) 
practice. I'll have to practice. Yeah. I'll have to yeah. I'll have to create some vocal fry recordings and share them with everyone. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> and if you want to learn more about Leanne Brown or her research, we will have links to get you started on the show notes for this episode, which you can find at scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten. Coordination and additional behind-the-scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. This show is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at Skeptic.org. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Shell. Desiree Shell.